getting people back into a place of stability. And I think that the second thing that I want to, the second realm of the economy is really building out a universal basic income program that is designed by the people of New York. I'm Lillian Ruiz. And I'm Charlie O'Donnell. Welcome to the Schlepp to City Hall. The number one New York City election podcast hosted by two undecided voters from Brooklyn. We just spoke to city council member, soon to be outgoing city council member, all along with everybody else, apparently, because the whole thing is turning over, but Carlos Menchaca, and I, I liked him. He's a sweetheart. He reminds me of my favorite of my fifth grade teacher. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very likable guy, and he was different than I thought he was going to be. Yeah, yeah. I thought that, to your point, very super likable. I definitely expected intense firebrand energy, but he definitely comes off as a sweet Texas guy um, who's like gregarious and warm. So, yeah, no, I, I think the headline knowledge I had about him was related to all of the resistance to industry city development and clearly from an ideological spectrum very much on the more progressive side and i guess i just made the assumption that resistance to development from a progressive candidate i painted a picture in my mind of what i thought that i was going to hear and i i definitely more came up with the sense of this is a person who you could have a very just reasonable conversation with. Not to say that I would say I fall pretty progressive on the spectrum and like to think of myself as a reasonable person. I do feel that there is this sense that, especially with like protests and, and stuff like that, that people who are pushing for change are going to be less conciliatory or not want to meet in the middle because they've been doing that for a long time and haven't gotten the system to work the way they want to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another thing that I thought was really interesting was I wasn't really anticipating how process driven <laughs> it seemed like it sounded like a lot of the conversations and the his approach was almost it was very process oriented very kind of almost truth and reconciliation oriented which when you think of someone who's painted as super radical you imagine that they're gonna slash right through everything so i did think it was interesting that it was almost this i don't want to say bureaucratic approach i don't think that's fair but it does feel like a very like methodical, let's talk through it, let's process through it energy, which I do, I, I find it interesting that given that's where his interests lie, I, I find it interesting that he would even want to run for mayor in some ways. I feel like there's a lot of places where that process would probably be better recognized and appreciated. So it was interesting to hear him talk through 
why he thought that process needed to be in City Hall right now. It almost, it does sound, and I agree with your point, and it sounds like he is someone who also knows how the system works. Like, we've heard a lot of things from candidates that are, I, I would say they come at it from a perspective of, idealism and here's what we need to do to make things different with little regard to how things actually work. I cannot help but think that it would be great to have him in the room for all of the important conversations. And I think, and I don't know if that is a, somebody, Eric said the other day that it takes practice to run and you, you get good at it. And look, we've seen this with Biden, right? Where you ran a couple of times and then this was this moment or whatever, is that there's a lot of kernels there where I'm like, yeah, like that's somebody whose perspective has definitely been missing yeah. from the conversation. Are New Yorkers looking for stability versus change and innovation? Yeah. And if it does turn out they're looking for stability, is is he maybe not that candidate for the moment? Yeah. It's interesting, too, to your point about he represents a voice that's not often in the room. One thing that I kept thinking was, I was like, he should just have a course that's like how to citizen, because I feel like he has a really like, has a very clear vision of like how to up people's understanding and so on. But to your point of do people want stability or do they want innovation? I feel like in order to get to a place of innovation, you have to have that baseline understanding about what's even available to you so that you can operate with less fear in a way. Yeah, no, I agree. And first of all, that's a fantastic campaign idea that we should definitely give him. (laughs) Because I think a course on involvement and how to do your part and how to impact, or not even do your part, because people have been working super hard throughout this pandemic, but how to impact, how to create impact. Yeah. I think it would be awesome. I would take that course. Yeah. We should write up just like one page strategy recommendations for everyone. It's like, we walked away from your conversation with these five recommendations. (laughs) Yeah. We'll give you a small preview. And for the entire report, there'll be a small fee because you know, we're not ad supported. Selling the reviews and recommendations to the candidate is the way we're going to have to pay for this thing. (laughs) Exactly. I'm very excited to have Brooklyn's own Councilman Carlos Menchaca here, who serves in Sunset Park, which is where my dad's old firehouse was. My dad did 20 years at 228, and so he'll be uh, very excited when he listens to this podcast. Councilman, thanks for joining us. Awesome. When I started this, and send my best to your dad, and thank him, thank him for his service. Okay. Seconding the big hearty welcome. We're actually neighbors. I'm I'm in Gowanus, so we're not too far away from each other. Um, (laughs) But but yeah, this show is really about. We want to give undecided voters a chance to to get to know you and understand you and and where you're coming from. I'm gonna hop in and can you give us a a little bit of a taste of what you do currently in your role as, as council member? How long have you been at it? And what do you believe you've accomplished so far? 
Yeah, thank you, Lillian and, and Charlie, for, for creating this space. I think in so many ways, we, we need these spaces to talk about the future of the city. And they are becoming incredibly difficult because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And I know that so many of us are experiencing it in different ways, but nothing is more, I think, real than the, the kind of mental health crisis that we're all in the middle of a, in the middle of it and experiencing. So in so many ways, the way that I want to talk about my time in the council is through crisis. I became a council member right after Hurricane and Superstorm Sandy hit New York City. I sprung into action and with an incredible force of nature by neighbors and young people coming together, we organized a mutual aid organization here in Red Hook, where I live, and built out something really beautiful that brought together people to respond directly when government was not able to. And I learned so much from that. And that is what gave me the inspiration to say, hey, we need this kind of leadership inside city council and to represent a very needy district of things that have just been rejected by government, either because of uh, lack of leadership, but also because of, of just the relationship to community. And so for the last seven years, I've really dedicated my time to building out pipelines of discussion and spaces and power empowerment and really building connections with communities that have never been connected. One of those places have been with within the participatory budgeting movement, participatory democracy, and allowing for people who usually are not connected to government to make decisions about how to spend millions of dollars of capital taxpayer dollars in their neighborhood. And that has really given me the opportunity to, to see young people and their families, many of them immigrant, public housing residents, design projects, and then fund them through the power of their organizing and getting people um, excited and voting and practicing democracy. And more people voted in our participatory budgeting exercises every year. At one point, more people voted in this process than in the election that got me this job. And so that's the kind of power, that's the example of how I see this next chapter of the city of New York flourish, a, a government that can really engage people. And this is different from a corporation. This is different from a nonprofit. This is government is and should be reflected by the people that uh, live under, under this promise of municipal, municipal response. And so I think that's the quick of it that, that kind of just explains how I do what I do, how I confront all the institutional powers. Many of them are allies. And what I've been trying to do is really confront everyone's notion that we are in a state of, that we need to be in a state of, of rediscovery and creativity ambition and reconstruction and reimagination. Yeah. Gotcha. So I want to follow up on your, that origin story of the mutual aid and 
the idea of neighborhoods coming together, given that you've been a part of citizen organizations that um, have done a lot for the community in terms of having communities help themselves and also been involved in government, how does that shape your view of what do you tell voters what they should expect from their government? Like what can government do for them? And where do you think the expectations are? I think what what I am compelled by this question more more than anything is this idea of, of expectation. I think if you have expectation of government, it's working. People need to have an expectation of what government should be doing with them. And I think the second part to that is this idea that we can co-govern, that we can co-govern with our communities, leadership within our communities that can go beyond traditional traditional roles and responsibilities. I'm talking about like nonprofits and other kind of typical leaders. And what I tend to do is go where government isn't going. The youth, for example, have been a massive force for me in connecting and bringing into the fold. And so I think what's important and constant in what I see government do best, build out pipelines of discussion. And when we're thinking about reimagining, we often go back to the same people who constructed the institution itself and ask them to reconstruct and reimagine. And what we fail to do as government sometimes is to go into spaces that have been impacted by those agencies. And I'm thinking about the NYPD first and foremost. The places where we need to go are places that we, we tend not to go and ask people, how do we have less police? Because we're asking for it. We're asking for defunding the NYPD. Well, what does that look like? And government can spend a lot more time looking at youth who have been impacted and ask them directly. And so when we're talking about expectations, I think what we got to do is just first start there and allow impacted communities to share with us that vision. And then it's up to government to then start crafting some of those new ideas, thinking about budget, thinking about policy, and reshaping that and constant feedback loops are, are going to be really important. And, and those things are difficult. Uh, those things get disrupted because of things like language access or, or just time and energy. And when you don't think like an organizer and most and many bureaucrats in government don't, you, you lose attention and you lose information and relationship. And so those are the kind of things that I, I like to think about and have been focused on in my time in city government. Gotcha. I'm so glad you mentioned youth because I'm curious from a background perspective where you're coming from. Like when you were younger, just tell us a little bit about your history of where you were born and growing up and how memories of your youth and experience of community have impacted how you are now? So much of what I see and how I see the world was formed as a child. So I grew up in, in the border, in a border town, El Paso, Texas. And the way that I describe it to folks that have never been there, it's like standing at the edge of Brooklyn, looking at Manhattan and seeing the East River and El Paso downtown and Juarez, Ciudad Juarez in Mexico downtown 
were closer than Manhattan to Brooklyn, near the Brooklyn Bridge. And so you could essentially walk across the bridge in minutes and visit the next downtown, the other downtown. And that's how close it was. It was an intimate relationship between these two international cities. And much of my family lived in Mexico. They're Mexican nationals. And and so my family was divided by this international border. And as a kid, I just remember feeling the injustice of this relationship to country and city and family. And I grew up in public housing, went to public schools, single mom. And being the oldest boy, I just hung out with my mom a lot while we waited for the, we had a lot of different food programs and nutritional programs. So we would wait in line for peanut butter, big buckets of peanut butter and eggs and bread and milk. And I remember getting in the car and and driving over to Mexico and, and sharing some of that bounty with my cousins. And I remember asking my mom, why can't we just have them come with us and stand in line with us? And and she just kept saying things like, that's just not how it works. It's, and we talked a lot about that. And she didn't have necessarily the answers, but I had all the questions. And I remember a lot of the things that my, my cousins had or, or that we had that my cousins didn't have and things like sewers and, and electricity. And I remember some of the neighbors in my cousin's houses burning tires to stay warm and thinking about the environment and thinking, well, that those toxins are come across the border. There's no border patrol for pollution. And so these are the things that were in my head as a kid. And that injustice made me feel like I had to do something, that I had to figure out a way to remove these borders where resources cannot flow easily, even in, in a family like mine. And I just felt the injustice. And so I got involved. I One of my first big marches was in middle school where we fought this massive low-level radioactive dump that was going to get built near the border of my city and Mexico. And, and we went to the streets. And we and so that was the beginning of my, like, the, the radicalization of my mind and my spirit. And so I, w- I was in student government. I was student body president in middle school or a vice president in middle school, vice president in high school, senior class president. I, I created my own club called Earth Now, um, brought more registrations than ever for 18-year-olds in this in a school. I was an engine <laughs> and I didn't, haven't stopped. You know, I went to college and was the first person in my family to go to college, arrived in, in San Francisco and became integrated in the Green Party in San Francisco. And, and so learned about electoral politics. And so I've just, I've been on this vector to, to confront systems that are just not supporting some of the most uh, vulnerable in our community. And I just don't think I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting. You started off by telling us about this quintessentially very specifically Texan upbringing. And here you are in New York running for mayor. I'm curious as to what was the moment that brought that on? And what was that transition point from to be to wanting to be like the quintessential New Yorker, essentially? (laughs) I think that the trajectory into New York for everyone is, is very personal. I think if you're here, if you weren't born in New York, I think that there is there is a magnet to 
to what is New York City. And what I've learned, and this is just through, and I've been here for now 16 years. I came in 2004 and immediately just fell in love with what I saw as a reflection of myself, a a human that just wanted to be immersed in in a human relationship with with the world that every moment and and this is this is how i feel as a council member i represent a district that had for a long time not been represented in the city council and many of the community members who i hold dearly are immigrant undocumented been battled by a federal government that is now ushered away and we have a new we have a new president but for the last four years we have really seen a a direct kind of hit to immigrants and as the only mexican american elected into the history of the city council uh, and still the only one in the state as far as i know we took on a lot you bring up a, a lot of i think really interesting differentiators. And I'm curious if if you could synthesize into one or two sentences about what's your unique approach among the candidates that you want, what's the unique lens that you want to, that you would want to bring to this role? The, the two things that I think are, are going to be different from my approach is a real commitment to co-governing and sharing power, partly because the way that I've always understood power is that power is not finite. I feel like a lot of the institutions that I confront believe that power is finite, that they have to hoard it, control it, and take it away from somebody else. Somebody else. And, and so... The way that I have governed is to think about power as an infinite, as something infinite, and to be able to grow more leaders and to grow more ability for empowerment. And so those those things I just don't see happening in the city. And that's engaging people that are, I think, constantly pushed away. And so we just talked about youth. I feel like there's so much ability for youth to construct uh, an next version of the Department of Education. And we've just gone through a whole year of, of I know it's, we call it virtual learning, but it's just, it, we should call it something else because it's just been a, it's, it's been a disaster for so many. And we could have been using this time with our youth to reconstruct how education can happen and what they need and how they can understand themselves in this situation. If we return to a virtual space, how can we rethink? And we always fail, the city always fails to think about them as co-conveners, co-partners in an education. And so that's one, one category of work that I think we can do better. And then the second one is more of a, of a risk taker. And so some of the policies that I want to bring to the forefront, and, and I'm going to do that as a city council member, is to think about things like the Green New Deal a municipal version where we can actually inject using the the power of the capital budget and our ability to borrow as a city to bring in billions of extra dollars that this mayor who just proposed his preliminary budget failed to do 
and actually invest in this next chapter of the city of New York on resiliency projects, on carbon capture and reducing our emissions, on climate change and new schools and a whole new uh, bike network. And these are billions of dollars that can get people back to work. And I think there's going to be a lot of folks that are going to say, we got to be more conservative about how we do what we do, when right now we got to take bold steps. And so these are the two approaches. I'm going to be, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to be not just big thinking, but actually take these risks. And, and I'm going to co-govern with communities that have never been invited to the table in a respectful way. I'm glad you brought up the attempt at virtual learning. We'll try and be kind to that. Yeah. The, the way I think about that, and I'd be curious as to your perspective, look, like when the pandemic hit, I think many functions of our government were unprepared. And those initial weeks and months and the uncertainty of how long it would take, what I would want to know is, okay, so we get through to the end of the last school year. And summer comes and we know we're going to have to face this issue post the initial COVID response, the shutdowns, and everyone could go back and forth about how quickly they would have shut things down. And that's all in hindsight. But there was certainly a moment where prep for the next school year had to happen. And I'd be curious, had you been mayor? How would you have approached that timeline? I think what you can do, and, and these are some of the questions, right, where it's like, oh, okay, this is what we could have done differently. But I think that already in May and into June, you were hearing from teachers that there were already issues, the same issues that we were presented with as school restarted. And, and it was through the teachers, and it wasn't through the unions, it wasn't through elected officials, it was the teachers that were saying, we have some big issues here. We are already confronting going virtual and we failed to bring that voice. And so what I would have done is, again, in this kind of co-governing model, I would have brought everyone to the table, it, not just the chancellor and his top aides uh, to instruct, but to bring in the immediate data of what what we did when we, in, in April, we were full into virtual and begin to understand and diagnose the issues. We could have, I think, predicted the fact that we were going to be home for some time. And even this blended learning was going to be a failed attempt to bring some kind of stabilization for people. And I think we could have gone in a lot of different directions. And so I think that's the first step that I would have done is bring the people that were being impacted and to listen to them and to help them chart a different trajectory and spent the whole summer, which never really happened, building out something new, something creative. And some of the things that happened in spaces that I was in were allowing for kids in a neighborhood to engage within the neighborhood with other kinds of non-traditional educational experiences to, to learn crafts, outdoor space activities, ideas like understanding how a bodega works. Let's look at the, the business model and create quick curriculum to engage kids to be like, look, this is how a business works. This is how this restaurant works. Let's understand what how our neighborhoods work and bring in civic education. And what we, what we saw inherently, very, very organic response, were kids out with their parents, 
marching. And that could have been another integrated curriculum experience. And so the, there are all these opportunities that I just heard that never made it up into spaces that could have taken the opportunity in this very unique space to, to build out an educational experience. And it wasn't teaching to the test that we essentially dropped. We dropped so many testing opportunities with without or not opportunities testing requirements without the ability to replace them with a new sense of learning that could only happen in crisis and look at it as an opportunity and we failed that we failed that test i i think there are some candidates in the race who don't know how a bodega works but that's a whole other <laughs> that's what i've heard hopefully knock on wood by january 1st 2022 we are mostly through the immediate sort of pandemic issues. So besides that, and I'm sure there will be lingering direct issues to be dealt with, what do you foresee as the kind of one or two most important challenges that the next mayor will have to take on in terms of priority? I think it's I think it's two things. If you're saying we're beyond the pandemic, we have controlled the spread. I think there are two things that are going to have to happen, if not sooner. One of them is healing the wounds of a of a very toxic public safety system. That that is what's taken people to the streets. That is what New Yorkers are wanting this government to respond to, and, and it's going to be a big it's going to be a big project. And so that's one. Two is the economy and getting people back into a place of stability. And I think that the second thing that I want to, the second realm of the economy is really building out a universal basic income program that is designed by the people of New York. We are dealing essentially with a municipal budget that, again, is not anything like a corporate budget balancing the books of a corporation or a nonprofit uh, or even your personal bank. Uh, account. This is a municipal government that brings the taxes of people who live here and work here and gives it back in in a promise for a more just and equitable city and a universal basic income program that can bring relief to people who do not have uh, relief right now. I think that you're going to see federal government come in and bring relief to many people, but there are still going to be folks that are not going to be eligible for a lot of different reasons. And the city of New York can bring relief to them that can bring cash and dignity for a family to stabilize themselves. And that will allow for us to do a lot of different things and, and bring the city back. And I think that's what everyone's afraid of right now. But the police component is so important. And we're seeing some incredible images and video right now that the the mayor and the and the police commissioner refuse to respond to that i think is is indicative of all the other fires that we're not addressing and i think this is one of those that we have to figure out this mayor this last mayor came in 2013 was elected in 2013 to fix this and it only got worse and so that i think those are the two things that we have to do we have to do with all the courage in our hearts to confront what is even, I think, scary for us. And because uh, we think that, not we, and I don't believe this, but I think there are a lot of folks who are resistant to the change uh, of the NYPD as a moment of, of disaster for the city. And, 
And I think there are a lot of people who beg to differ on that. And so those are the two things that I think we need to address. Just to follow up on the, the NYPD issue, what about this pers- this issue makes it so difficult to address? This is something that is not new. Certainly the, the events over last summer brought things to the forefront, but it seems to be a very persistent problem that feels from the outside intractable. And I'm curious as to where you see a lane of solution. I think that the, the, the first thing is that not everyone experiences the police in the same way. And so you have these pockets of experience that for, for some folks are just a world of differences apart. And, and so when you're having a conversation with folks, people are just really confounded and confused about what is the problem with police? Why do you hate it, hate them so much? And maybe they have an officer in their family and maybe they're white and maybe th- these are the things that have divided our experiences with the public safety the, in the public safety conversations. And then you add the fact that so much of this has been polarized in, in, in social media and in these last four years where you have had movements rise that are not communicating. And so we don't even have, we don't even have a space to discuss this. And I think this is now up to government to create spaces where we can begin to understand the differences and educate and communicate and engage communities. And that doesn't happen. And so we are in this breaking point where we, something has to change. And the fact that things are not changing, I think are causing this tension and and forcing people to go to the streets. And the images that we're seeing nationally, this is not just a New York City issue. This is an urban center issue. This is an American issue. And and I think that Breonna Taylor and her case and, and her life, I'm thinking about some other cases that we don't even know about that have been historical. This is all part of this long history of injustice. And I think that the polarization is not going to not going to allow us uh, unless we create that space for discussion and spend that time to humanize this, neutralize it in some way to move forward. And just government has not had that leadership. What does an idealized budget look like and an idealized budget process that facilitates change, but also that facilitates a fiscally sound and stable New York? So being in the city council for the last seven years and negotiating budgets and having a relationship with this administration have taught me a couple things. One is we actually don't know the full budget of the NYPD. It is a strategy of the administration. And this is not just this administration, but beyond to hide pockets of dollars that support the institution of the police. And so this last year, when things came to a head, we uncovered a lot more information and we're not done. And we believe there might be a little bit more than $6 billion. It might go as high as $12 billion. And so one is just information. We don't even have the information. The transparency is not there for people to join us in this exercise. That's a big concern. And as mayor, I want to change that. I want people to really understand what, what we're spending 
and and where people's dollars are going. And I think this is part of this relationship with the municipal government budget rather than like a corporation or a nonprofit or someone's personal bank account. So the the second thing is I think that we can hit a three billion, truly a three billion dollar reduction in the NYPD that is going to force us to think about a smaller size force and move those dollars to build out uh, stabilization of our communities that are in great need. People are hungry, people are homeless, and we can really spend a time and effort and money on regaining trust with communities that have lost trust with government. And it's going to take resources. It's going to take a, a whole lot of resources. And I know that federal dollars are going to come and the state dollars will come. But if this city doesn't do it first, and we have the opportunity to do that this summer in June, not only are we going to be electing a new a new government, a new city government with a new mayor and a brand new city council, but we are going to be passing, this current council will be passing its own budget. And we have to do right by our city. And we can set it in motion to invest in communities that have been impacted by COVID, essential workers that have been keeping the city alive for this last 10 months. And many of them have not gotten any relief whatsoever. And many of them have sacrificed their lives for this city. And if we don't, if we don't approach it like that, we, we're going to miss this opportunity to regain the trust of our New Yorkers. And it'll be a long, dark chapter for the city to rebound because the, the spirit of the city is more than brick and mortar and infrastructure. It's about the soul that it's not just this city. It's all the cities in the world are facing. And I think this is why I take the stances that I take because it's in direct reflection of the people who I serve. And so you have a super unique view of the budget as a member of city council. I'm really curious as to from a New Yorker, what are the things that a New York voter really needs to understand about how the New York City budget works, how the budget process works, how the participatory budget works? And as a tag on, do you think that by helping New Yorkers better understand the participatory budget component that we can help them better understand kind of their civic role in general. Absolutely. The current participatory budgeting initiative that we have in the city council is just a glimpse at what I want to do as mayor and to bring people in to really understand how we construct the yearly budget that gets passed and that people have no sense of it, but people know how they are impacted when they don't have the things that they need to live in the city, a house, an apartment, food, a job, uh, a bike lane to be able to get to work. Uh, all these things are part of how the city budget can work for them. And so I think participatory budgeting is an example of what people can do. And, and the thing that I, I go back to is in Sunset Park, because we have one of the most robust programs in the entire city, and more people vote in this in this thing than in any other district, there are people walking around our neighborhood that understand how city agencies work because they have to engage the Department of Education and the School Construction Authority, the Department of Transportation, Parks Department, and, and talk to the bureaucratic systems about how much it costs to renovate a park or a section of the park or a street lamp 
or bring in technology into a school. And so the more that people can understand how government works, the more they can shape it in their vision and in their for their desires and for the community's desires. And I think that the more we can do that, the better we can do. I think the other important thing that that will come up very soon is that the city council has the power to pass its own budget separate from the negotiations of the mayor. Currently, the mayor proposes a preliminary budget. We respond to it after a set of public hearings and we give them recommendations to to change it. Mayor de Blasio has not taken any of our, in the last seven years, hasn't really taken our recommendations seriously. And it's not until the end, the last few weeks, where we we put our foot down, we we make pitches for the things that we care about, he caves in, and then we, we end up with a budget. All of that is done in small room negotiations, and we fight our best. But I feel like we can it can be a different approach and really engage communities at a time where resources are going to be scarce. We're in an exercise of decreasing budget lines instead of increasing. This budget has grown over $20 billion in the last seven years. And we have the opportunity to, to reset a lot of that and bring us back to a place where we need to be. And again, that should be in service to a relationship to build with community rather than taking that power in this world of finite resources and finite power and instead share it. And I think there are a lot of elected officials that get elected because they think that they can make the best decision for others. And I'd rather err on on a different note to bring people in, to educate them, to engage them, and let them be a part of the future of the city. Gotcha. So two more weighty but perhaps brief questions before we get into a couple of fun ones. (laughs) So what do you say to the New York City voter who is concerned about, while still historically low, upticks in crime, when they hear about reducing police budget, how do you address that voter's concerns? How, how should they think about crime and crime prevention in New York in light of changes proposed to the budget? It's been a long time since New Yorkers are used to seeing any kind of spike. Sometimes they have to be reminded of where we are compared to where we were 20 years ago. But right. And so there's more of a concern now around this election, considering that there have been some candidates who are calling for reductions. And then I think just across the board, New York City has an economic situation that probably requires at least some reduction across the board. And so they're concerned about what budget reductions mean for crime. Yeah. So I think that the best way to do that the best way to engage a New Yorker that might be concerned about decreasing the NYPD's budget as it relates to crime is to bring information and data. What we know is that more police do not equal does not equal more public safety. And unless that pe- unless people can really put themselves into the life of folks who have been targeted, and I'm talking about black and brown youth uh, specifically, they will never understand. And part of our work is to build these spaces where people can be educated. And if, if people are engaging, then we should engage back. 
if people are writing to us about that fear, we should invite them into conversation. And it'll be up to them whether they want to engage, but it is up to us to present the data, the understanding. If we can also talk to them about where we want to put these dollars that can address the issues of equity, what we know is that when communities have what they need, there is a less need for that traditional sense of, or not the need, but the perception of a carceral state to build prisons, to build these pipelines for people to go to and go away from uh, our communities. And, and I think those are the, that's the kind of dialogue and education that I have that should be shared. And so I think this is an educational opportunity, which is why you asked, when you asked me, what's the biggest thing that we need to do when 2022 comes, it's going down this journey. Because I think what we are not going to have the luxury of time to be making some of these decisions. We're going to be cutting budgets. We're potentially at another $6 billion cut in this next budget. And the question is going to be where. And so are we going to come back to the communities and say, we're going to have to cut healthcare dollars. We're going to have to cut affordable housing dollars. We're going to, but we're going to keep the NYPD budget whole. That's going to, we're going to need to, we're going to have to answer for that too. Thank you. Um, in any one of the following three areas, what's a bold idea that you would like to see explored at least in either transportation, education, or housing? Okay. One idea or a couple ideas? Okay, I'm going to throw really quick ideas. One, one, one category, no, one category, one bold idea, but you could be in any one of the three categories. I'm sure you have many, but you I have, have many. To... <laughs> okay. They'll be quick though. Transportation. I think we need to think about drones and using drones to carry goods, period. Like we, I, I just see the, the future of these drone corridors where we can get out of trucks and utilize the use of, of drones. That, that's one one crazy cool idea that I, I see NASA working with us and thinking about ways to bring the technology that they're using for Mars and the Artemis project. And then the other crazy bold idea is in housing. I want to municipalize empty apartments. And I, I want to start with the stuff that's in HPD, but also apartments that have, have been owned by people international from you know, international banks and bring those apartments into a city program to house our New Yorkers. And that's bold. And I think that not a lot of people are talking about that, but that's what I'm looking at right now in my campaign. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Lillian's got two fun questions for you for us to finish off. Yeah. So these are hands down most important questions that you're going to answer this entire cycle. You got it. So first is, what is your favorite slice of pizza in New York City from any place? And is it a regular slice or is it a grandma slice? <laughs> okay. It's a regular slice. And the my favorite place right now is in Red Hook. And it's called Hook, H-O-E-K. And it is absolutely delicious. And you can enjoy it near Valentino Pier on Ferris and you should go check it out. And they have this d- delicious vegan, uh, a vegan pie as well. And, and I recommend it. That That's definitely on my list, but I always 
see it on the way back from hometown. And so I'm like, <laughs> I can't have a pizza. Yes. <laughs> it's too much. I have to remember that. No, Go ahead. <laughs> I was actually going to just hop into a quick question on a famous New York sports ball, as I call it. <laughs> so two rapid fire questions, Mets or Yankees? Mets all the way. Knicks or Nets? The Nets. Rangers I... Islanders. <laughs> what, what, what was that? I said Rangers Islanders. I'm going to go with Rangers. All right. <laughs> I guess Lillian's leaning in on the idea that there are no New York City football teams in the five boroughs. So that's why the Jets or Giants don't count. Or is it just... <laughs> The Jets are a historically terrible franchise, and we were better off not talking about them. Definitely I, the I, former. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for spending time with us this afternoon. We really appreciate you getting to know you. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And looking forward to more conversations, if and when possible.